2: Today, we celebrate our LGBTQ plus friends and consider our shared responsibility to be a more inclusive culture with Elena Joachim, the executive director of Equality Ohio. It's Beth from the right. Sarah from the left has the episode off today. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We really appreciate everyone's support and the new reviews. If you're a new listener, we're delighted to have you on board. Our Patreon page helps support our podcast and ensures that we can continue to grow. If you go over to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics, you'll find lots of extra content. This weekend, we'll be hosting a happy hour there where you can tune in live to talk about home renovations and homekeeping in general with us. So today, I'm going to quickly share a little bit of news Some of the incredible feedback that we received from Tuesday's episode and my interview with Elena Jochum, who is the executive director of Equality Ohio and someone whose work I am really coming to admire. President Trump was interviewed by Sean Hannity on Wednesday night. I'm using the word interview very generously because uh, Hannity basically sucked up to the president for an hour in a in a room full of people who are very strident supporters of the president so it was just a very friendly environment for him i continue to be surprised by how the president is comfortable making statements that have been proven false and widely reported as false over and over. He repeated that America is the highest taxed country in the world, for example. I was trying on Twitter to sort of live fact check some of this interview, and I could probably spend the entire podcast today going through statements that just weren't true in this discussion. So I don't know that there's a lot of news to share from this conversation. The president said he doesn't want to talk about North Korea. It would be great if he would just not do that then, especially on Twitter. He talked about tax reform in a way that I found very confusing and misleading. I think I want to take a second to say to our news, new listeners who might be confused about the voice from the right being so critical of the president, you know, our reason for being on Pansy Politics is to show that two people who operate from really different frameworks have more in common than not. And so we don't intend to be a debate format. We intend to have a discussion that's something that you don't hear everywhere else. And when I say from the right, I mean right of center in terms of my views about the role of the federal government. And I don't see my values being represented by this president. I certainly don't take it as an obligation to defend him, especially when he continues to say things that just aren't true to the American people. And I also don't see it in the Republican Party right now. I'm really... Frustrated and disheartened that the Republican Party has all of a sudden become comfortable with legislating via executive order, and I don't think it's fair for them to talk about DACA being illegal, and at the same time have the president prep to sign executive orders that fundamentally alter our health care system. It's just disheartening to me to not see any principle um, running through the Republican Party right now. So. You will hear me be very critical because I think that my role here on Pantsy Politics is not to represent anyone but myself. And for me, it is it is just not true and it's not authentic to be defending things that I find indefensible. I think this interview with Sean Hannity was un-American propaganda, and I think it's a disgrace to the office and a disgrace to journalism. And I think Sean Hannity and Fox News should be ashamed. I feel a little better having gotten that off my chest. Thank you for letting me vent for a second. Switching gears, uh, Sarah and I continue to hold the people of Puerto Rico in our hearts as well as the people impacted by wildfires in California. What a set of tragedies the country is enduring right now, in addition to global crises. We'll talk more about foreign policy next week, but we certainly hope that we can all start to come together and solve some of these challenges uh, that the physical earth is presenting instead of politicizing all of them as the president seems inclined to do. Okay, I want to turn to some feedback, which was just a a lot of fun this week. We will talk more about the feedback on uh, the attention economy when Sarah's back. I really want to process some of that with her. I got so many great emails about Class Dojo, though, that I wanted to share. So a recurring theme in the emails about Class Dojo, and if you haven't listened to Tuesday's episode, you might want to go back and do that before you continue here, um, is that this system, these sort of classroom management tools Might be a logical extension of the star charts that some of us grew up with, but it's also another step away from intrinsic motivation and toward having human beings be rewarded only by things that validate us externally. Meredith Dave and several others emailed about this and I wanted to share Anne's words in particular. Anne is a clinical psychologist who works primarily with kids who have learning disabilities or other neurobehavioral issues. And she said that tools like dojo and clip clip charts can be really helpful for kids who have specific learning challenges, but most kids don't need them and schools keep adopting tools that help a very small set of children um for everyone in ways that can be harmful. And here are Anne's exact words. Have you ever heard of the over-justification hypotheses? It's the idea that when you offer an extrinsic reward for a task or behavior, it decreases a person's intrinsic motivation. This is especially concerning for a budding learner. If she is, in, if she is already intrinsically motivated to learn and follow social norms, and then you insert an economy that places concrete values on those behaviors— It undermines her desire to do things because it feels good or because it's the right thing to do for themselves or others. Sometimes external rewards and consequences are necessary, but the guiding rule should be the least amount of intervention needed to preserve the intrinsic motivation and sense of autonomy, just like it's important to use the lowest dosage needed in medicine to allow the body to engage its strongest natural immune response possible. And I just said all of the hallelujahs when I read that from Anne. It made so much sense to me. And I think you can see that playing out to it into adulthood. I couldn't help but think about the situation with Bob Corker when I read this and how many people are saying kind of quietly to journalists, well, it's easy to be honest or moral when you aren't going to run for re-election again. And I couldn't help but think about the parallel between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and how it plays out in adulthood from all of these messages. So thank you very much for sharing and continuing that conversation. We also heard a lot of feedback on our Harvey Weinstein discussion, and many, many listeners shared with us stories of casual street harassment, workplace harassment, gender-based violence and discrimination. It was very touching to me that you trust us enough to share those stories. It was encouraging to me that you trust our community enough to share some of those stories in public places. I think that really helps women understand that they aren't alone. They aren't crazy. It's not their fault. And so thank you for that. We're going to talk a lot more about all of this uh, with Gretchen Carlson later this month. Sarah and I are delighted to be able to sit down with her and talk about her new book, Be Fierce, where she describes... The um, investigation that she really undertook into gender based violence and sexual harassment following her departure from Fox News. So that will be a wonderful conversation. But a theme in her book and in the stories that listeners are sharing is that this is not just Hollywood. We tried to make that point on Tuesday. I don't think it can be made frequently enough that, you know, it's tempting to make this about Hollywood and the culture of Hollywood. And certainly there's that's a relevant piece of the Harvey Weinstein story. But Harvey Weinstein is one story of many stories that are playing out constantly throughout the United States. And this is a cultural issue that we all have ownership in, and we all are going to have to own the solution if it's going to be solved. Last piece of feedback that I wanted to share um, came from Peggy about our discussion on masculinity. She wrote to us um, about how a friend of hers said that her husband was really only capable of expressing anger as an emotion And that, for me, looped back to a discussion that we previously had on anger and how we're more comfortable with anger than ambiguity and and discomfort and lots of other emotions. And it gets to something that I've been thinking a lot about. You know, I think culturally, we really only ask and in some ways permit women to express emotions other than anger. And we are damaging both men and women in the process. It's always interesting to me when people criticize our podcast by calling it too emotional, Uh, especially when I look at the president and things coming out of the White House. I mean, it's it's incredibly emotional what's happening there. It's incredibly emotional when you look at the tweets from men who harass women online um, and women who harass other people online, its that's certainly not limited in terms of gender. If you've heard any of the he- Harvey Weinstein recordings, there's an unbelievable amount of emotion at the center of everything that's going on. I think that having all of us reflect on a healthy relationship with anger is important. I think it's also important for all of us to recognize that one gender doesn't own other emotions. They're impacting all of us all the time. And we would all be best served by expressions of emotions that are healthy and um, regular. And, you know, Brooke Castillo, who I talk about a lot on the podcast, has this model for all of all of behavior. I highly recommend listening to her show, The Life's Coach School podcast. But she says that, you know, you have a thought about something and your thought creates an emotion And that emotion turns into your action or inaction or reaction, which drives the results that you get in any given situation. And to act like only women are emotional in that way is really denying a lot of truth about what's happening all around us all the time. Okay, next up, I'm going to share my discussion with Elena Joachim and I hope that you enjoy hearing more about the work that Equality Ohio is doing to advocate for LGBTQ people in the public and community realms.
1: We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura
2: So, I am here with the Executive Director of Equality Ohio. Elena, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your organization?
0: Sure. Thanks so much for having me today, Beth. It's a real honor to be here. Um, As you said, my name is Elena Jokum. I'm Executive Director of Equality Ohio, which is Ohio's statewide LGBTQ education and advocacy organization. Um, We're both a 501c3 nonprofit and a 501c4 uh, nonprofit organization um, working to educate, change hearts and minds, we like to say, around LGBTQ equality, and then also hold our elected leaders accountable and change laws to improve policy for LGBTQ Ohioans.
2: So you mentioned the 501c3 and 501c4. Can you give people who don't know um, a a brief overview of, of why both of those subsections matter to you?
0: sure absolutely um, changing hearts and minds that's focusing on the educational work um, introducing folks to their lgbtq neighbors and coworkers um helping people understand that they know somebody who's gay lesbian bisexual transgender um, all of that falls under the 501c3 designation that's our tax exempt uh nonprofit status um, but when we need to actually talk with our elected officials, our legislators, um, people we've elected to the State House or perhaps to local um, municipal council members, for example, to help them know which way to vote on pending pieces of legislation, that's why we have our 501c4. It helps us hold folks accountable and actually lobby our elected leaders for equality.
2: So talk to me a little bit about about you first, and then we'll get into the specifics of the organization more. How did you come to this position? How did you develop your passion around this topic?
0: Yeah, this has actually been an issue just very close to my heart um, my entire adult life. I grew up in western New York, a small town called Jamestown. Uh, and although New York State is generally very progressive, western New York is actually quite conservative. And I remember being in high school at a time when uh, gender and sexuality alliances, GSAs, as we call them now, or at uh, a different time, gay-straight alliances, um, that did not exist in my high school. I did not know anybody who identified as gay or lesbian or transgender. Uh, I did not know anybody who was out. Um, I can't say that I remember hearing gay slurs thrown around the hallways, but I may have also erased that from my mind at the time. Um, When I first met a person who was a lesbian and who had been fired because she was a lesbian, I was shocked. I was shocked. I remember talking to her and saying, no, that that can't be possible. That's not constitutional in my very naive teenage understanding. And I remember uh, her looking at me and just saying, wow, you have a lot to learn. And I did I did. And I went and I learned about this. I learned that, in fact, at the time it was legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people, to fire someone just because uh, they were um, in love with someone of the same sex or because they identified as transgender. And I said, how are we not talking about this? And as I did more research, I realized, no, no, we are talking about this. This movement has been going for decades. Um, We really stand on the shoulders of giants. I just realized I needed to be part of it. Um, And so I worked to get uh, interconnected with LGBTQ um, equality organizations while in college. Um, I studied, uh, um, I worked with our allies organization at my college, Baldwin Wallace University University. And um, actually ended up moving to India to work with the same gender loving movement there after college, working with a nonprofit that was doing this work under the radar because um, homosexuality is actually criminalized in India. It was decriminalized for a time. It was recriminalized. And now they are pending a major Supreme Court decision to determine um, how it will be classified going forward. Um, so that was really intense work, and I've continually come back to it. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I went to law school and worked with a large um, litigation firm, but my heart still kept calling back to this. And so when the opportunity uh, emerged to actually do this full-time with Equality Ohio to help open the Northeast Ohio office in our work, I really jumped at the opportunity and uh, i am proud to have been here for the last four years fighting every day.
2: In that four-year time frame, a lot has happened Nationally and at the state level, I assume before we kind of dig into the current state of things, I would love to hear what maybe a couple of highlights of the past four years have been for you
0: yeah there's been there's been a lot to celebrate. Um, we have been working very hard uh, within the movement nationwide. Um, probably the most prominent victory that is on folks' mind is achieving marriage equality. Um, And that did happen in 2015, June 26. Um, That was the day that the Obergefell decision, the Supreme Court of the United States, held in favor of marriage equality as, as, constitutional across the country. It is a case that actually emerged from Ohio. So it was really exciting to work around the case at that time. It was our own Sixth Circuit that Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee and Kentucky fall within that sent that case to the Supreme Court. And we did a ton of organizing around that at the time. Um, But our organizing was really focused on changing hearts and minds so that folks would accept marriage equality, would understand that this is about love um, and wanting to support LGBTQ people in their right to marry individuals, regardless of the decision of how that Supreme Court case went. Um, Ohio is one of the states that actually had enshrined discrimination in our Constitution back in 2004. There were several states that did so at the time, and they defined marriages between one man and one woman. So we were focused on having literally more than 20,000 conversations across all 88 counties in Ohio to talk about why this was about love. This is about just respecting the relationships that we have and uh, allowing people to marry the person that they love. And that work um, was was important, regardless of how the case was going to shake out. We're just really grateful that the marriage equality ruling was as robust and fulsome as it was in the Obergefell case. Can um, so that you, was a major victory. Can you give some specifics
2: as to how you go about that heart changing, mind changing work?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's not sexy. It's hard work. It really is having a field staff where we take um, many one on one conversations with individuals across the state. Um, It's when we sit down with business leaders who, for example, as we are working on adding non-discrimination protections, because Ohio remains one of 28 states. In 2017, Beth, we are one of 28 states where it remains generally legal to fire or to deny service or to deny housing to a person simply because they identify as LGBTQ. Um, As we are working to educate about changing those laws, It is just sitting down with individuals one-on-one and talking about what that means. Um, Sometimes we have small groups of business leaders that we'll sit down with to talk about um, why we need to make local protections for LGBTQ folks in this area. Always working towards statewide, but we've found great success at the local level and actually changing local municipal laws. Um, And it's answering questions. It's It's working with individuals to know that they know someone who is transgender, to listen to transgender individuals share their stories um, about how hard it was to come out, what it's like to be working at a job and then be told, we don't hire people like you, uh, which are those are the real stories that we see every day in our work. Um, elevating those stories, perhaps in the media outlets, having our newspapers cover that, or having small town news reporters attend these sometimes intense council city debates where we're looking to implement a local non discrimination ordinance. Um, it is a lot of hard conversations and just humanizing the LGBTQ community. If we can connect one on one, I really believe uh, that that ultimately does exponentially more than that singular conversation. That's the only way that we're able to change hearts and minds and ultimate policy at the state level.
2: One of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you is because when I first met you and, and learned about your work, I was impressed by the approach of it's, it's not only changing legislation, it is changing culture and your, your kind of commitment to doing those things simultaneously. And I, would love to hear why you think you have more success changing municipal laws and then kind of how you put in context the national versus state versus local framework as you think about your advocacy efforts.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, um, we like to think of it as I I, I actually do an image when I'm presenting to folks. Think of two hands holding each other. One hand is legal equality, and that's changing our laws and policy. But the other hand is lived equality, because if we don't have that shift in culture, if we don't actually change community attitudes, if we don't have people know that they know LGBTQ folks within their own neighborhoods, those laws or policies are not going to be received in an authentic way. And so we see our work as as hand in hand of legal and lived equality and changing that. Um, that approach has been really effective at the local level. You know, I, I think there's that, that famous saying, "All all government is local. Um, We are really finding that to be true right now. Although Equality Ohio has been focused on changing municipal laws for for some time now, we've really seen an increased pace of it Um, in this very challenging time at the national level, a really uh, difficult dialogue that we're seeing there. Our municipalities are calling us, conversations we've been having with them perhaps even for, you know, many months or even over a year for some municipalities and saying, wow, we want to distinguish ourselves. We want to make sure that our municipal residents feel safe so that they know that they are welcome here. And so we're able to provide support to help those municipalities do it. Um, and we have to do this in a really authentic and transparent way. I think at one point in this municipal work many years ago, there was some thought like, oh, well, let's just sneak these laws in. Let's pass them um, and let's put these protections on the books and not be really forthcoming about them because we're afraid to have the conversation. It doesn't work. We have to have that conversation front and center. We need to center transgender individuals in the community to elevate bring visibility to the issues, the real life struggles that transgender people face so that we can meet them head on and have those conversations in the open and then pass the policies to support the community. And so that's how we've been approaching the work across the state. We have currently um, 19 cities in Ohio that have passed fully inclusive non-discrimination laws. And what I mean by that is that um, everywhere in that local code, uh, there are protections against being fired. So employment, uh, it being discriminated against in housing and then being discriminated against in public accommodations or the service industry. Um, think think restaurants, hotels, anybody who opens their business commercially should open it to everyone equally. And it puts laws in the books in that way. Um, but really, you know, as you kind of alluded to, It's the conversations that are the most impactful. It's when we have those round tables. It's when we have testimony of mothers of transgender kids who are so proud that their council is standing up for those children and making sure that they can grow up in a safe community. That's the real work. That's when we know um, that we're making a difference because we're bringing visibility to folks who have otherwise felt invisibilized and marginalized. And I
2: think that approach is so effective. As many of our listeners know, I work in Cincinnati, Ohio. I live in Kentucky and consider myself a Kentuckian always, but I work in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And I think Cincinnati has, um, I don't see backlash in Cincinnati, you know, to this kind Mm -hmm. of legislation. I see a real sense of pride, even in places that I wouldn't expect it, um, around the city's efforts to be inclusive. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think absolutely. that's because of th- that that commitment to having the difficult conversations and this focus on lived equality, as you're discussing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because the law is going to be meaning it's going to be meaningless unless you have a cultural shift behind it, um, and unless you have some real commitment from and buy-in from the community to embrace it. Um, and we've got a long row ahead, Beth. I, I got to tell you that that is sometimes. Um, you know, you have to take each victory in stride. Uh, I said we've got 19 cities with local non discrimination protections, but we have 922 distinct and individual municipalities within the state of Ohio, the great, very uh, widely spaced out state of Ohio. Um, having this conversation 922 times, are we committed to it? Absolutely. Would it be a whole lot easier if we could get those protections at the state level so that they blanket the entire state? You bet. And this work fits right into that, because every city and every village and every town that we have this conversation in um, brings our hearts and minds up to Launching that statewide law. It shows our elected state leaders that, you know what, the town of Lakewood is ready for the state to act now. The town of Amberley Village, a a city right now outside of Cincinnati that is considering these protections, um, that speaks to that elected state leader to say that my area is ready for this. Not just the big city of Cincinnati, but the village outside of it is ready Mm -hmm. as well. All of that feeds into the statewide strategy. And you asked earlier, you know, sort of where we sit in that national scheme. Um, I'll start at the local 19 cities with fully inclusive protections covering about 21 percent of Ohioans giving some access to a remedy. Um, but Ohio has no state protections and Ohio is one of 28 states lacking these nationwide Ultimately, we do hope that the federal law will change. And there have been a lot of pushes uh, through both the Employment Non-Discrimination Act in years prior, and now the Equality Act, which would update federal laws to be inclusive of LGBTQ people. Um, We have to sort of push all three strategies simultaneously.
2: So I kind of rudely interrupted your line of of discussion about, um, the highlights of your work thus far. So you mentioned marriage equality and that's where I got us detoured on all the work that you, that you did around that. Um, are there other things that you would call out as real success stories?
0: Yeah, I, I think that, um, that was a major highlight and certainly took a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the, uh, headlines. It, 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 most people know about that victory publicly, but there were a lot of victories at the agency level that happened at the federal level um, as well. For example, the, equal, uh, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, saying, you know what? Um, we've protected against sex discrimination for a long time since the Civil Rights Act has been in place. Sex discrimination really includes sexual orientation and gender identity. You can't separate a person's gender from their gender identity or from their sexual orientation. Um, That's an argument that lawyers had been making for decades, but it really took the EEOC sort of fleshing out that case law over the last five to six years to come to a position of saying, you know what, sex discrimination really is discrimination against LGBTQ people. Um, And that was a great victory that happened over time that is um, that is pretty uh, uh, rooted in some strong cases and that we're watching carefully because we do see a shift in this administration to undo a lot of those agency victories. We're hoping that the EEOC's position will not change because it is rooted in some case law that is a little bit older, Um, but that was a major victory as well. Um, So some would say, all right, well, doesn't that obviate the need for statutory protections for LGBTQ people? And the answer to that is no. First of all, um, uh, LGBTQ people want to see themselves included in writing in black letter law in Ohio's non-discrimination codes. Um, there might, you know, one might say that's a symbolic victory. I, I think it's a real victory. You want to see yourself protected so that anybody can look up those codes and know that they have some redress. Um, but the EEOC also does not take uh, every case. They have certain limitations. Their provisions only apply to employers of 15 or more, for example. So, not everybody would have access to the eEOC's protections if they work at a smaller um, a smaller business entity. And finally, the EEOC only covers the area of employment. Um, full non-discrimination protections, which is the core focus of our work right now, would also include housing and it would include the service industry as well. Um, but that was a victory and there are several other agency victories that happened in the last few years that we've really been celebrating and that have contributed to this overall increased dialogue um, around how do, we, how do we help LGBTQ folks feel truly at home in this state and in our country.
2: on your radar right now. I receive your emails, so I know that you think about Mm -hmm. uh, the appointment of judges and you think about legislation. I'm sure that you're thinking about the military directive that the president has recently put into place. How do you choose what to focus on at any given time?
0: It's hard. It's hard. We've actually um, had some very real conversations about this as a staff because uh, quite frankly, we feel assaulted all the time by the headlines and by the tweets that emerge from the president. Um, and um, we have we have realized that we need to just take a breath sometimes. And sometimes, instead of perhaps responding to what uh, we are seeing as the attempt to roll back all the gains made for LGBTQ equality and and in so many areas, uh, and simply to remind folks, you know what, we exist. We are here. We are working to make sure that there is no chipping away and to actually keep advancing the ball in this troubling time. And we love you. And I know that that can sometimes sound trite, but sometimes we simply need to be reminded that we have each other and that there actually is the foundation of love from which we are operating. And that's kind of how we've been moving in this space. Um, There are certain things that are clearly within our purview as Equality Ohio focused on the statewide work. Um, Any attack or change at the local level, we, we work to intervene in. Any threats at the state level, for example, Uh, if a bathroom bill were to emerge at the state level, we are constantly vigilant against that and working to, frankly, prevent their introduction before they happen, um, but certainly to stop it if it were to be introducing it moving. Um, We're also really grateful for our national partners, amazing, amazing organizations like the National Center for Transgender Equality, NCTE, um, the Human Rights Campaign, HRC, the LGBTQ National Task Force, um, we are really grateful for their vigilance at the federal level. Um, that said, we do weigh in. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, judicial appointees, they are a big deal. Um, the Sixth Circuit had a vacancy, and we really opposed uh, John K. Bush's nomination. He has a, a clear anti-LGBTQ history, and we wanted to make sure folks knew about that. We wanted to try to influence our Senator Portman to vote against his appointments, we were so grateful that Senator Sherrod Brown stood out so vocally, so vocally against his nomination um, as, as not being um, a fair minded judge to be sitting. So we do weigh in on those. But frankly, it is uh, there's a lot of issues to choose from right now. And we are working our best to make sure everybody's educated about all of them. And then where we have a clear lane and a and a clear action to lead folks to that action, even if it's being led by a national partner.
2: I would imagine that we have a number of people listening who desire to be good allies to the LGBT community. What would you advise them to do, especially if they have not been involved in any kind of advocacy work or any kind of ally training? They just care and, and want to be helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that is such a good question and so important. Um and I think of, you know, the word ally is a really important word. Um, I think we think of it as a noun. I'm going to uh, to propose a radical notion that actually we have to think of it as a verb. We have to think of it as an action. Are we being uh, allied today? Are we being allies? Um, because it's not a hat that you can put on and then just keep it and say, I'm an ally. It actually has to be um, earned or put on every morning, and so I think the best thing we can do to to encourage allyship to the LGBTQ community is is sort of make that a conscious mantle that we put on ourselves every day. Um, are we calling out instances in of of uh, uh, homophobia in our life? Are we um, having the hard conversations with coworkers if there is a, you know a homophobic remark or or reference being mentioned and saying, "Hey, you know that's not okay or it sounds like it sounds like what you said might be um, homophobic. Um, how do we call out those instances and microaggressions in our daily life? I think that's one thing that we need to constantly be vigilant for. And then we also need to just try to stand up and bring visibility and center transgender people in the work and center LGBTQ people in the work. Um, I think I, I would be remiss to say a good ally could join Equality Ohio, uh, our listserv and get our emails because we have clear actions that you can follow. Um, sometimes right hyperlocal down to your municipality, um, cities that are going to be considering these non-discrimination ordinances coming up, Amberley Village, Golf Manor, Sandusky, South Euclid. Um, there are spaces where you can show up and sit in solidarity as we work to convince our councils to add these protections. Um, and if you feel even, even like doing a little bit more, sharing a personal testimony as to why this matters to you. Um, we had some of the most have some of the most powerful testimony from our allies in these municipalities. Um, I'm remembering a person in Olmstead Falls who she got to the podium. And then she just sobbed and she she threw those sobs Said, I just don't even know why I'm here because we shouldn't be having to have this conversation. I have no idea if any of my four children may someday identify as LGBTQ, but I sure as hell want them to live in a space and know that they are respected um, if they are. Um, that's profound and very actually easy to do just showing up.
2: And if I'm not in Ohio and I'm listening, is there a good place for me to go to find a similar organization in my state?
0: There sure is. Uh, it's called Fairness Kentucky. Um, we're lucky that most states have a statewide equality organization like Equality Ohio or like Fairness Kentucky. Um, but definitely our two states, which have a lot of work to do, um, we are really grateful to have both organizations working in in. Uh, our two states. We also have some local organizations. Um, Check the internet for if you have a local advocacy organization. For example, there's one based in Lexington, Kentucky that has been really active in making Lexington one of Kentucky's most inclusive and welcoming cities for LGBTQ folks. I was really um, honored to be there actually uh, earlier in July speaking at a conference Um, mostly focused on parents of transgender children and just talking about the policy work sort of from a national perspective. And there's great things happening in in all the cities around uh, Kentucky and in Ohio. And and so um,
2: I guess my question is, is there a national repository for organizations like
0: Fairness Kentucky and Equality Ohio? Yes, there is. Um, We have a, um, it's sort of like a trade association, but um, more more of a connecting policy support network for all of our organizations called the Equality Federation. And they will list their partner members, um, almost one in every state that they can refer you to. And these are the organizations that are working to change, um, as I said, hearts, minds, and policy. There's other organizations that are fantastic as well that are more focused on providing services. So to give you an example, the LGBT Center of Greater Cleveland is actually the third oldest LGBT center in the country, Um, just celebrated their 40th year anniversary. And they provide tremendous programming, support services, um, uh, you know, Basic access points for local LGBTQ folks in the greater Cleveland area. And they have tons of volunteer opportunities from leading discussion groups to answering the phones at the front desk. Um, there's a center in most large cities in across the country. Um, and that just requires a little bit of, of research or going to Centerlink. Centerlink has a great repository of sort of the local LGBTQ centers that you can get involved in if direct service is more your type of volunteering rather than changing policy. So
2: you mentioned a 40 year anniversary, which leads me perfectly into um, my last question for you. I love the work that you're doing. I so appreciate it. I love the way that you do it. I would like to know if you foresee a moment when you have worked yourself out of a job, if there will be a moment when we don't have to have this conversation anymore.
0: Uh, what a great question. I, I've got to tell you, it's my goal every day. We talk about this on our staff, that this is our goal to work ourselves out of a job. Um, I hope from a policy standpoint, from a legal equality standpoint, we are working our way, and, and maybe there's a more clear um there's a clearer victory in the horizon that we can see there, that we will get laws on the books that will help LGBTQ folks feel safe, protected, and have redress if they experience discrimination. Um, The lived equality though, I'm not sure uh, that we're ever going to be out of the work there because laws do not change hearts and minds, hearts and minds experience one-on-one conversation and just that lived Uh, integration um, with our neighbors and understanding the complexities of our identities, that's the only thing that changes lived equality. And so we're committed to working towards that, to working to end oppressions of all forms as Equality Ohio. Um, We actually have a very broad mission statement. We're envisioning an Ohio that is welcoming to all regardless of sexual orientation and gender identity um, because we do see our mission as ultimately working towards being an anti-oppressing entity and institution. And oppression comes in a lot of forms with a lot of identities. We know that transgender women of color are on the front lines and experience multiple oppressions um, to the point of the most violence and and death um, because of simply who they are. That work, continuing to change the hearts and minds, is probably going to continue long after the laws are passed, though I do hope that someday, generations from now, we aren't needed at all.
2: Well, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for being here to talk about it, and I hope that we have inspired some folks today to get involved in their communities.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having us here. Um, EqualityOhio.org is our website, and FairnessKentucky.org is the Kentucky website. Thank you so much, Beth.
2: Thank you to Elena Jokum for joining me. Thank you to Equality Ohio for the good work everyone is doing there. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Sarah and I will be back with you together on Tuesday for another episode. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you as always to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie,
1: and Sabrina. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme
0: music.